This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is the landmark 100th episode of our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. To celebrate, it's an all-lightning round edition. So buckle in. Don't be the tallest structure on the golf course. And get ready for the lightning. Sponsor this week is Atlas Games and their beloved time-honored storytelling card game, Once Upon a Time. As you might have been able to guess from that pressy, in Once Upon a Time, players tell a story together using cards. Each player has a number of cards with fairy tale elements on them. Like a dragon, a stepmother, a journey, a palace. Each player also has one ending card. Like, and so his wound was healed, but his heart remained forever broken. To play Once Upon a Time, one player starts telling a story and laying down their element cards. For example, once upon a time, a brave knight set out on a grand adventure. And then you play your knight card. But other players can get control of the story. When a new player takes over, they continue where the last player left off. Weaving in their own element cards. The goal is to play all your elements and then play your ending card so the story makes sense. Great for role players. Great for kids who are usually better at it than adults. Great for fiction writers to sharpen storytelling, if not editing, skills. Pyramid Magazine called it one of the best games of the millennium. Games Magazine called it the best family card game of the year. Designed by, among others, James Wallace of Baron Munchausen and Nobilis fame. The third edition of Once Upon a Time is out now, with a bunch of expansions and more on the way. But Atlas Games has a problem. They still have copies of the second edition left. For a limited time, Atlas is blowing out the still great second edition at a liquidation rate that includes shipping and handling? Check it out on the web at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. So, what are the key things to remember? Once Upon a Time is a card game that's great for role-playing and storytellers. Check. It's an award-winning game created by a towering genius of gaming. Check. There's a limited time chance to check it out at a liquidation pricing. Check. And all the details are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. Indeed they are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. So hey everybody, welcome to the super duper extra anniversary all lightning round edition of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to all of the episodes that you have listened to. Even if you just listened to these few minutes so far, we thank you for that. That's right. Although that seems odd, like an odd choice. Well, you know, some people want to start with the anniversary. This is not a clip show. And this will be an ideal sampler. Indeed, I yes. I, I take it back. This is a perfect choice. That's a perfect choice. You are a wise listener. A wise listener. And perhaps you're jumping aboard now because... We have been fortunate enough to be nominated for an Emmy Award for Best Podcast, which is very exciting. Yes, yes. A great honor to be nominated for an Emmy Award. Congratulations, obviously, to our friendly rivals who are also nominated, and to everyone else who is nominated for other stuff, which includes Robin. You were nominated for Best Game, were you not? Yes, I'm uh, very blessed this year. Uh, Hillfolk is up for Best Game, Best Rules and Product of the Year, and its companion volume, Blood on the Snow, is up for Best Supplement. So I had a very happy Monday yesterday when I discovered what all the nominations are, and I'm very grateful to the judges. If you are hearing this, listeners, before any voting closes, as you may know, the Ennies start out as a juried award, and then in their final phase shift to a 
fan award, which you, the listener, may vote on. So if voting is still open and you feel so inclined, we would, of course, be very grateful if you voted for our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, and I would be extra super-duper grateful if you dig Hillfolk and would be willing to show that by voting for it. We have some other business to get out of the way. Specifically, we have identified our mystery questioner from the previous episode where we talked about red herrings, and that is Drew Clowry. So thanks for that question, Drew. So, Ken, as our 100th anniversary uh, episode uh, descends upon us, what have we learned? I think that we have begun to learn that uh, we should probably have a delicious beverage at some point during the recording of the podcast, especially when we do two back-to-back. Uh, I think that helps. I think that we have learned that Rob will cover for our most egregious errors and make us sound good. Rob Borges, our sound uh, man and editor. Our sound whiz. And we've learned a great deal, of course, about uh, the occult and time travel and Canada and uh, so many other uh, valuable topics. Robin, what have you learned from this besides that this was a crazy idea and perhaps you should have made this Ken and Jonathan tweet talk about stuff or Robin and Rob talk about stuff? Well, I think this has been, if I do say so myself, a brilliant idea. So I I have no remorse on that front. Fantastic. I, I have, uh, I don't know if it's uh, this qualifies as learning uh, anything, but I've certainly talked a lot more about Nazis and Nazism than I normally do. You know, I've, I've read my Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. I've seen Shoah, but I've never quite spent quite as much time talking about those SOBs. But They uh, are the orcs of modern gaming for the excellent reason that they volunteered for the role. I guess and so. that is why they are there. Also, you know, as I believe we've said on this show before, when you have an artist design your logos instead of communists, it uh, sinks into the public mind a little more, I believe. Yes, and of course my podcast partner wrote a, a brilliant book, The Nazi Occult, and of course so we had to uh, get into that. So, that's our exercise in nostalgia, but now we must forge ahead. Uh, this is our all-lightning round edition, and so we solicited quick questions that we could uh, knock off in uh, fairly short order. If you submitted questions and do not hear them, uh, several things may be in play. One of them, we may just not get to your question by the end of our hour or so, in which case they will be banked for future use, because of course we do occasionally do just regular lightning round sessions of Ask Ken and Robin where we answer, you know, three, four, five of those. Also, we got a whole bunch of questions that I thought were great questions, but were in fact questions that were better suited to entire segments. So Yes, they were they were not lightning round so much as they were full on Direco round questions. Indeed, yes. So I've uh, banked all of those as well. So you may be hearing your question as an entire segment. And also I picked things for balance. So we got a lot of uh, stuff asking us for our favorite this or to uh, rank that. And uh, I've selected a few, but I didn't, uh, I think an entire thing of us just naming off favorites would not be the most compelling choice. And some people gave us whole bunches of questions and we tried to restrict it to one question per asker. And in that case, I asked the, or sorry, selected the question that I found most uh, interesting or different or contrasting from the others. And uh, so without further ado, I will uh, take a sip of the aforementioned water and now prepare myself for lightning round. First lightning round question is from Brian Rogers, who says, what influence do you think amateur press associations had on gaming, either as a community generator or a testing ground for new ideas. Ken? 
Well, I mean, to begin with, the Perrin conventions that created RuneQuest were born in an APA back in the day, when Steve Perrin got a hold of the very first absolutely indecipherable rules of uh, Dungeons & Dragons, uh, back when it was sort of that still halfway mark between Chainmail and the game that we know and love today. And I believe that Big Lebeski signed on to those before they were watered down in the uh, final. <laughs> he very well may have. And so he built out of that a game that he thought he could play at the table, and that game turned out to be the core mechanic of RuneQuest. So I think that uh, fundamentally, uh, if Amateur Press Associates had all disintegrated right then, they would have had an absolutely seminal impact on gaming. Robin, you, I believe, got into the whole business through an APA, did you not? Yes, anything that I've done is due to my involvement in alarms and excursions. I didn't even think of role-playing as a career. And some days we still don't. Uh, yes, well, <laughs> a, a sane person would still not think of it as a career, but I had not... Cons well, my other career was playwright, so yeah, between right. those two... And having brushed up against the legitimate stage, I think that we made the right choice. Yes. So anyway, the in the uh, late... 80s and early 90s, I got involved in alarms and excursions and was one of a whole group of people who started out as contributors and then wound up getting involved uh, as professionals or had already written things as legal. The editor had already written GURPS Japan, but there was a period there where there was a group of people who went on to not only work in role-playing games, but uh, sort of became a, a tight-knit group of allies. So Rob Hainso, uh, my acquaintance with him is due to alarms and excursions. Uh, same with Jonathan Tweet. And there's a whole group of people. Uh, Phil Masters was involved in uh, alarms and excursions. So in short, the answer is that both ideas and people came out of that scene uh, because it was the precursor of the internet. It was the internet in a mimeograph. And uh, that's where we went back in the day. I remember everything was purple and smelled weird. John Wilson asks, uh, which of Moorcock's stories or worlds would you most like to play through, and how would you run them as role-playing games, Robin? I'm of two minds. The obvious one is Elric, and if I were to run Elric, I would do it either with whatever new rule system came with Elric by whoever was publishing it and I would be <laughs> writing for it, or uh, if I were uh, in a universe where I was just doing this uh, for my own amusement and those of my players, I would use the existing setting material from the Chaosium game and use Hero Quest mechanics, because that would be my go-to rule set for something that would be heavily procedural. But I think I would also be tempted to do uh, Jerry Cornelius, which is his crazy, freaked-out, acid-tinged, William S. Burroughs-influenced spy series, and uh, I think that would be fun to do as a kind of a really loopy a version of Gumshoe, where maybe all of the investigative abilities were uh, different mind-altering drugs or something. Jerry Cornelius was my answer as well. I, every now and again, would, since Chaosium, way back in the day, had apparently the license to the entire Eternal Champion cycle scroll on a napkin. I, I would occasionally attempt to sell them on me writing a Jerry Cornelius game for them. If I ran it now, it would be with a looser system than BRP, just because it's more insane and it, you can't be slowing down to roll dice like that. I think that I would run it. Gumshoe might be a fun thing to experiment with. Fate would probably be my first reaction, because it's uh, so very easy to change the fundamental ground rules in Fate, and Jerry, you know, switches over into World, where half of his abilities don't exist anymore, and he has another half of new abilities, and he's totes cool with it, and just runs off and continues to be Jerry Cornelius. I think that that would be probably the sort of systems I would do, and I would probably have to make sure that my players were were drenched in that milieu. So they'd either have to be Cornelius fans or they'd have to be 
you know, listening to a lot of late 60s, early 70s weird music, and ideally we probably would not be engaged in hallucinogenic drugs at the time, but hey, couldn't hurt. Yeah, you know, whatever for research purposes. Right. Yeah, you'd need huge buy-in to succeed at a Jerry Cornelius game, which is perhaps why Chaosium <laughs> never, never accepted your pitch yes. to publish Weird. it. The next question up is from our pal Scott Herring, who asks, What do you think of American Horror Story? I admire it in the abstract. I haven't watched it yet. My uh, lovely wife, Sheila, who I count on for such things, uh, watched uh, the first season, didn't much like it, watched the second season, and thought it was much better. And so I think we're both going to try and watch the third season. They have, they have witches or something, I think, I guess is the story going on there, right? Right, because each season is a, a separate story with sometimes the same cast members playing different characters. Which is the thing that I like best about the show, this sort of, you know, throw caution to the winds, crazy, quasi-anthology style of it. Right, because one thing about a horror show that has ongoing characters is that after a while, you run out of crazy things that can credibly happen to them. Uh, see also True Blood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, I, I will be able to answer Scott's question at... Sometime after uh, Netflix Canada acquires American Horror Story for streaming, because it's not on a cable package that I get. So they have they have, they have Canadian Horror Story right now, in which there's only like plain donuts, and no one can agree on how to split them up. Yes, yeah, so the <laughs> Canadian Horror Story is everyone's heard of Jelly Modern Donuts on College Street, but in like one of those dreams, mm -hmm. you keep walking, but you, you can, can never, never get find there. It. Yeah, and occasionally people are rude to you. On, on the exactly way. that that's the that's the key. That's the twist in the in the eighth episode. Someone is rude. Edward Hirsch asks, "Is Greg Stoltze a tulpa?" And the answer is no, because he has children. Tulpas, as is well known, re reproduce by Tibetan arts of mentation and not by having children. So that's how that works. I say Greg Stoltze is a tulpa, and therefore so are his children. Mm, interesting choice. Rick Dakin asks, if my players are getting ready for Dream Hounds of Paris and only read one Dreamland story by HPL, what non-Kadath story should it be? And of course, that's a pretty big carve-out because the one thing you should get everybody to read is Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath because that's the big kahuna of Dreamland stories in which he takes all of these other disparate and sometimes contradictory things and melds them together into continuity. And that's interesting, not just as a source for the Dreamlands, but sort of a really early example of a continuity being established right. before Marvel Comics and so forth. So, Ken, now that we've addressed the the structure there, what second story after Unknown Kadaf would you have them read? I think that in order to play a game like Dreamhounds of Paris, the one that they should have to read is Celepheus, even though it is not the second or even third best Dreamland story. But I think Celepheus sort of sets out the ground rules and establishes the mood of the Dreamlands very, very well. And for that, it is probably on the mandatory read list. So I guess to give a backup and give some additional info on what Dreamhounds of Paris is, it's the Trail of Cthulhu sourcebook in which you play the key real figures of the Surrealist movement in Paris in the 20s and 30s who learn that they can manipulate the uh, land of dreams and therefore further their real-life historical goal of achieving profound social change by changing the human consciousness. And uh, one of the key uh, plot points around that is that they start to go to all of these different uh, kingdoms and authoritarian structures within the dreamlands and start to knock them down as a way of trying to uh, bring about their unorthodox Marxist revolution. And in the 
campaign that I ran of it as the sort of gamma test and also in the book, one of the key things that the uh, players may be drawn to do is to go for something bigger and wipe out the vestiges of all of the human gods. And so I would recommend that you read the story, The Other Gods, in which a denizen of the dreamlands climbs a mountain to see the place where all of the half-forgotten gods of humanity gamble and play. And in the game, your players may wind up invading and trying to uh, wipe out. Yeah, which actually implies that they should also read a non-Lovecraftian story or two by Lord Dunsany, from whom Lovecraft took the notions of a continuity and of a lot of his imagery and sense of what the dreamlands are like. The collection Time and the Gods is probably the place to start there. Ken Ringwald asks, does Ken have any advice or opinions on Chicago's occult bookstores? And my advice is, come visit them in the late 80s and early 90s when they were still good. The current crop is, uh, I think there's one called the Occult Bookstore that is still cranking along on Milwaukee and is all right if you've never been in another occult bookstore. But as with so many things, there are occasional little uh, lacunae in Chicago's perfection, and its occult bookstore scene is definitely one such. I don't know that I've even set foot in the occult bookstore, in, actually, in long enough that it might have been good again. So if you're listening, occult bookstore, this is your chance to uh, spiff things up, because maybe I'll feel guilty when I hear this in a month. So would you attribute that to just the, the general decline of specialist bookstores in the internet era, or is there something more arcane afoot that you could structure a Chicago occult adventure around? I think that uh, one of the very most important things that you realize when you live in Chicago uh, for any great length of time is that the the city's ethos of pragmatism and uh, just rolling up your sleeves and getting it done is so obviously either the counter-effect, the natural antibody to the fundamentally magical nature of the city, or it is a deliberately created spell. And obviously investigating which it is, is uh, maybe a goal for a uh, great uh, Chicago occult novel or superb Chicago occult role-playing game, of which I've written several by now. But whichever the cause, the result does seem to be that the occult bookstores diminish and go into the West faster here than they do in somewhere like, say, the Bay Area. Although even the Bay Area lost Fields Books, so I think that there is some level to which just specialty bookstores are taking it in the arm in the great world of uh, the Amazon and the internet and like, like specialty retail everywhere, but bookstores are the canaries in the, in the coal mine there. So it's not a, a secret project to re-occult the occult. I don't, I don't believe that Chicago is where they begin to occult the occult. I think they do that in, again, in California by masking it with nonsense. And then the, the, the real occult can make manifest that which is hidden fully knowing that only the truly illuminated can see the signs. Jason Petra, a friend of Hillfolk, asks, which other game designer has impressed you the most with their designs? Ken? In tabletop uh, role-playing games, I think it's still Jonathan Tweet. I think I am never not going to admire just the fundamental quality of his uh, his key first designs, and then Everway, and then the the half of 13th Age that is his is terrific. Obviously, 3rd Edition, his part of turning it into RuneQuest was was done pretty well. I think in tabletop board games, probably Eric Lang is my favorite uh, board game designer, although I don't know the field so well as to confidently assert that he's the Michael Jordan of the field. He may merely be the LeBron James of it. And in card games, I don't have the faintest idea, but I, uh, I think that there's probably a lot of good ones that I don't know. Robin? 
Overall, I would say Richard Garfield, because with uh, Magic the Gathering, he didn't just invent a game, he invented a whole new category. Right. And it was something that was highly realized in its first published instance, more highly realized than, say, uh, the first role-playing game was, <laughs> and is still played today, and he, uh, his work influenced all sorts of other games, and you can take the sort of exceptions-based uh, structure and poured it into role-playing and the discipline of the brevity of how all of the powers had to be written on the cards and so forth. So, for example, there is stuff that he did with Magic the Gathering that I'm pulling into the new version of, of Feng Shui even. And so, you know, it, inventing a whole new category of game and getting it right the first time is uh, pretty damn impressive right there. Yeah. Role-playing-wise, I guess uh, I would have to cite uh, my man, Greg Stafford. Yes. Uh, if you consider setting design to be role-playing design, certainly uh, his work on Glorantha is incredibly impressive and seminal. Uh, his work adapting the Arthurian mythos into Pendragon, uh, likewise so, and very influential in starting to break away the implicit idea that the rules should never impinge upon your personality choices or the way that you play the emotional decisions of your character is very important. Mm -hmm. And uh, Prince Valiant, I think, is an undersung, early, stripped-down game that uh, presages a lot of what came after in story games. With, with a coin flip mechanic, it's, it's incredibly good. Prince Valiant is, is well worth checking out. John Stewart asks, <laughs> What do you think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff these days? Robin, what do you think of the MCU these days? I dug the new Captain America movie. The latest Thor movie uh, managed the feat of being more incoherent and unaffecting than the first one, which was an incredible feat. <laughs> and I gave it's... up watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. partway through. Now, there are those who will tell me that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. got good, or kind of good, uh, near the end, when it started... Or began to justify the Stockholm Syndrome. Right, when it started to tie into the Captain America uh, movie continuity a bit more. But we do not live in a universe where you have to, like, watch two seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation for it to get good, and that's fine. There's so many different uh, choices of uh, great television shows, and even if you just restrict your television viewing to overtly nerdy things... There's way more things to hold one's attention these days, and so I put shows on probation a lot earlier, and that's why I only watched four episodes of uh, Penny Dreadful, and although I watched more episodes of Agents of Seals than I arguably should have, I put it on my strict three-episode, three-duff-episode-in-a-row-and-I'm-out rule, and uh, they mm -hmm. got to that part about a third of the way through the season, so I can't comment on the rest of the season. The X-Men movie, which is not technically part of the DCU, I also uh, liked quite a bit and thought was uh, not only an effective presentation of the uh, source material, but was also a really great, coherent movie that pulled together this incredibly sized uh, cast and had forward momentum and uh, was even touching. And so uh, I dug that as well, although I don't know if it fits the criteria of the question. I agree with you pretty much all the way across the board, except that I'm still clinging on by my fingernails to S.H.I.E.L.D. merely because I think it's going to be such a touchstone for people who want super espionage in the future that you at least have to see, you know, the, the, the single uh, gem in the giant dung heap uh, of that show. I don't trust anyone, regardless of how well they tie it into Captain America 2, which I thought was easily the best of the MCU films 
maybe with the exception of Iron Man, but probably not. I, I loved Captain America too. I thought it was terrific. It was it was all up there with a with good Nolan Batman. But but Shield, if you can't write five episodes of Mission Impossible, you can't write anything. And so therefore, the fact that they managed to tie it briefly into a vastly better property and Gravity is holding it up there for a bit is is not indicative of future performance at all for me. I agree with you that Thor was nonsensical. There were uh, the, the the annoying thing with Thor too is that there were so many really clever, interesting bits that so obviously could have been put into a better Thor movie. That just on, was... on Christopher Eccleston wastage, yeah. it's unforgivable. <laughs> there are many, many problems with new Thor. And then uh, I agree with you that uh, new X-Men Days of Future Past is a credible apology for Man of Steel, so or rather for Superman Returns. So Brian Singer is back off my probationary list. I'm amazed that you watched any of Penny Dreadful because the words John Logan show up right there in the front. So that's on you, my friend. I, I don't disagree with you. It was uh, it, it was free with the cable package, and I thought I would check it out. <laughs> and uh, it, it really wasn't... It does warn you in the title what quality it's going to have. It's also interesting, and something we can maybe feed into in another segment, is, uh, you know, really weird takes on uh, horror figures. So uh, I guess there is that thing where we are sometimes more tempted than we ought to be to watch train wrecks in order to analyze them. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, if any of you are thinking of watching Penny Dreadful, don't save yourself the effort. Elliptonist Jason Colavito has been uh, reviewing every episode on his blog. So if you just want to know what's happening, um, go, go to jasoncolavito.com or whatever it is. If you want to find what later, uh, Valerie watched a few more episodes than I did. So I, I heard of the even greater depths of ridiculousness to which it uh, later <laughs> to sank. To which it sank. Yes. All right. Um, that is, that, that's answering two questions in a row and not one that John Stewart asked. We are lightning. We can <laughs> yes. go sideways. Exactly. We can go, we can be, uh, sheet lightning. We can be ball lightning. We don't have to be regular lightning on our own anniversary show, Ken. As the second best Green Lantern, I, 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 I think that uh, we, we, should, we should owe John Stewart a straight answer and then step out into, into the next strike. Lee Williams asks, which fictional literary character do you guys wish was or had been a real person? Dr. Fu Manchu, absolutely. Uh, first of all, because in Drums of Fu Manchu, he kills Mussolini and Hitler. <laughs> and um, uh, so right there, that's awesome. And then second of all, you know, in a showdown between Fu Manchu and Mao, Fu Manchu is going to win. So he may kill individual British adventurers, and these things will happen, but he's not going to kill 60 million Chinese people. And so therefore, in terms of making the world better at one jump, I think Fu Manchu is the guy you want to keep around. And, you know, as long as... And since you don't have to bring in Nayland Smith or any of the other annoying uh, guys in his universe, he can just sort of... Uh, be awesome and grow giant purple centipedes to his heart's content. I'm I'm not as sanguine as you are about picking a, a supervillain absent the heroes who keep them in check. <laughs> so I would uh, go for the flip side of that and, of course, say Superman. Because if you have Superman without Rex Luthor and Brainiac and the Parasite and all of those dudes, everything's... Uh, uh, Things are pretty great. Groovy, yeah. Uh, hopefully you would get, you know, early or late 30s, early 40s WPA Superman and you could go uh, write some... Uh, uh, social wrongs along with... Uh, that's right. Superman um, uh, beat up uh, Stalin way back in 1940. So There you go. That's an excellent choice as well. I, I would I would trust Superman uh, over Fu Manchu, weirdly enough. I also would trust Superman over Fu Manchu, but it said literary right there in the question, so I figured that it had to come from prose rather than 
uh, comics, although you can certainly argue that Fu Manchu is no more literary than Superman is. Uh, yes, I guess so. They're, they're both uh, pop culture figures. Right. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, actual figures from serious literature, you, you know, probably a Jane Austen heroine. That would be yes. pretty awesome. I think, I think uh, the world always needs more Liza Bennett's. Because in, in straight-up literary fiction... You know, a lot of those people are, are very troubled, and you're not doing them a favor by making them real. No, but but uh, Lizzie Bennet would, would be a decoration to any society in which she was placed, whether it be the Regency or today. John Tabor asks, which is your favorite of the other's projects? Robin, which is your favorite of Ken's projects? I'm going to cop out and uh, declare a disjunction between categories. So within nonfiction... I would have to say uh, the Nazi occult, previously mentioned, filled me with delight. The uh, drift into disguised, semi-disguised imaginary nonfiction, <laughs> being an Osprey book and all, that's definitely the uh, the book in that format that you were uh, born to write. But the game that you were born to write was Trail of Cthulhu. And of course, I'm biased because it uses uh, my gumshoe rule set. But nonetheless, uh, I think that is your gaming masterwork. Okay. I think my favorite, as opposed to the thing that I consider to be your best work, has got to still be Last Chance Brains, the adventure that you did in Weather the Cuckoo Likes uh, back in the day, because that simultaneously revealed to me the possibilities not only of Over the Edge, but of adventure creation in a way that nothing had before and very little has since. So that is that is my probably my favorite Robin project. That is also the project that made me a Robin Laws fanboy a condition that has only marginally abated since then. I think that if I'm looking at your work's quad design, I think that I'm I'm most impressed by either, and again, I'm going to sort of uh, weasel around a little bit, I'm going to say either Ashen Stars, where you sort of look at space opera and realize the procedural qualities of it and pulled it out into the sort of central perspective, and then also from that retrocreated the setting in a lot of really interesting ways, the Moholar War only being the most obvious of the really interesting ways that you did that, having just written a little uh, Ashen, Ashen Star side project for Ken Writes About Stuff, I uh, am recently re-impressed by that. And then I'm uh, never not going to love, obviously, Dreamhounds of Paris, which I think is a, a phenomenal project. Speaking of projects, people were born to write. And again, although it is for my game, it is with your rule set, and I think that when we collaborate, we are truly, truly mighty, and none can stop us. The next question comes from Chris Huth, also a friend of Pelgrain. He is an illustrator and graphic designer for Pelgrain, and an illustrator and graphic designer for others, and a member of my very own gaming group. And he says, what non-RPG book would you want to make essential reading for gamers, and why? Uh, Ken, what would that be? I believe that it, depending on what kind of gamers, I think that just for essential reading for gamers, I would say Charles Nichols' The Reckoning, The Murder of Christopher Marlowe, is the single best role-playing game source book that is not actually a role-playing game source book, and I think that all gamers would want to read that, and if that inspires more people to want Elizabethan material, that's all to the good. I think, obviously, for GMs, it's Anatomy of Criticism by our buddy Northrop Fry, because it breaks down story and symbol and symbology and symbolism and the sort of fundamental beats of myth in a way that nothing else has before or since. And it will hopefully get uh, the sick taste of Joseph Campbell out of your mind. 
And uh, for those of you who are wondering why Ken and I hang out and collaborate despite our varying political views, it is because we agree on anatomy of criticism, among many other things. Uh, that was going to be my uh, choice as well. And I guess I would also throw into the pot any 12 randomly selected chapters from Edward Gibbon's uh, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Excellent choice. And good pro style. Yeah, and we should do a, a Gibbon segment in future as well, we should. come to think of it. Yes. There are certainly later histories that take advantage of more research and might be uh, more reliable as a narrative fact, but in uh, the grand sweep of storytelling and the eye for evocative detail and the lovely sarcasm that uh, uh, runs throughout it and and uh, the ir- irreverence uh, toward uh, religion in my view is uh, is uh, also a point well, in its favor. I think in everybody's view it's a, it's irreverent towards religion. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, that's definitely a point in its favor as far as I'm concerned. So um but just the the sheer number of story ideas that you can mine from it, you know, they just jump out from every other page uh, yes. and uh, that's uh, something that I would uh, highly recommend. Steve Dempsey, another friend of Pelgrane and friend of the podcast, asks, what beverages go with which games? Robin, what beverages go with which games? So the question is whether this is a practical question or an abstract philosophical question. Mm -hmm. So uh, in practice, uh, except sometimes when I'm running a game, say, at Pelgrane headquarters or for a convention organizing group and it sort of goes with dinner, I don't partake of alcoholic beverages uh, while uh, running a game. I want to stay sharp because usually my Thursday night games occur after my Thursday day of writing gaming stuff. So I'm already kind of a little tired when I hit the table. Uh, Caffeinated beverages, that's too late in the day for me. I don't want to be up half the night. I often am up half the night after game night just uh, because of a combination of having my brain running on high in the evening and our that's our night when our loud garbage trucks come by in the middle of the night mm-hmm. so no no caffeine so strictly water when i'm actually uh running so ken do you uh generally partake of uh, stronger uh drink when uh when actually uh, running or playing not when running a, a role-playing game uh, for role-playing game sessions i believe that caffeine is my friend it keeps the energy level up at the table which is crucial it keeps me focused and awake, and uh, since I am going to go home and write all night anyway, it doesn't matter that it actually does keep me awake. For tabletop games, I find that strong drink is helpful and fun in in almost every board game, except maybe really hardcore war games, although uh, we've played days-long games of Third Reich that began with coffee and ended with (laughs) the last of the wine in the apartment, and so that that was a pretty good time, too. So I would say... Liquor with board games, uh, caffeine with role-playing. Now, on the abstract sense, of course, we could, for those who do partake in a stronger drink, match certain drinks with certain games. So, for example, Hill Folk uh, would be mead, Mm -hmm. or you could also go with a resonated wine, because, of course, during that historical period, uh, wine was often uh, supplemented. Some today might say adulterated by various substances, and this is something that has gone out of historical favor. And the only example of that that you can really find today and buy at, at any well-stocked wine shop would be Greek Retsina. Um, and uh, that's infused with a bit of pine resin. <laughs> or more than a bit. Or more than a bit. When <laughs> I first uh, read about that, uh, I was in the context of 
This is definitely an acquired taste. So uh, with some trepidation, I tried some uh, Retsina recently, and it was lovely. So uh, oh, that would, that would go. go with the health folks. Ken, what would go with Day After Ragnarok? Day After Ragnarok, you can obviously either get a bunch of random non-brand beverages from the store, just in a sort of salvaging mode, or you can go with old uh, brands. You could go with Yoohoo and Ovaltine and uh, Moxie and, and things like that if you can find them. Or um, you just might, might want to stick with good old uh, proper uh, American beer with with a uh, with a day after Ragnarok. I think beer is probably would work would work pretty nicely with with, the, with Dar because everyone starts getting loose and things get a little silly and it's probably what your your characters have been drinking uh, regardless of whether you're playing American barbarians or British uh, guys on the front line. I, I think with Nice Black Agents, you definitely want vodka martini and shaken, not stirred, if you want to go uh, with the film, or stirred, not shaken, if you want to go with the original version in the books. Um, so any other games you want to hit me with? I'll tell you what drinks go with them. Okay. Uh, obviously, Absinthe goes with Dreamhounds of Paris. What is the drink for feng shui, and does it differ from the drink for feng shui, too? The drink for uh, feng shui would... Uh, you probably want to go with uh, sake or soju, I think uh, Chinese rice wine is uh, more of an acquired taste, but I think you're still within the, the right ballpark there, especially for Feng Shui, too, when there are a lot more uh, Korean and Japanese movies uh, in the filmography. Right. Yes, I would definitely say soju for Feng Shui, too, especially having just seen uh, The Berlin File, yet another great Korean movie. Uh, so many great Korean movies. Oh, uh, yes, that's in the Netflix queue. Looking forward to it. It's good. It's so good. Well, we could talk about drinks and games all day, but we have more lightning round questions to answer. We do. Lightning continues to strike. And the next one is from John W. Corey, who asks, Do either of you work while listening to music? What is your preferred genre? Ken? Yes, I do work while listening to music. My preferred genre is anything with a beat faster than I type, because if I am slowing down to match the speed of the tempo of the music, then that slows production. But if I am constantly chasing it, then that speeds production up. And that is just a fundamental, you know, neurological quirk of me that if I'm listening to slow music, I'm writing slow. Uh, that doesn't mean that I won't pick something that's really very atmospheric. So, for example, while I'm writing Dracula Dossier, I'm listening to more, more sort of uh, goth, dark, and, you know, over-the-top type music. There's a band called uh, Bella Morte that I discovered at uh, Mysticon, who are great guys and produce um, sort of up-tempo death wave, I guess. I don't know what you call it, but uh, it's good stuff, and I listen to that when I'm writing that. For When I was writing Nice Black Agents, there's a soundtrack of Italian cop movies of the 70s and 80s that I found worked amazingly well to write Nice Black Agents to. And, of course, I edit to punk because you have to be angry to edit well. Yes, uh, I have a feeling we have uh, either the same... 70s Italian cop movie uh, anthology or a similar one with the same Italia uh, Violenta. It. Oh, mine is called Beretta 70. But, Whoa, uh, look at that. Now we uh, each I can bet swap they have out. a lot of the same key tracks on them. Very likely. Um, I, too, listen to music while I write. I cannot have silence. I find that much more distracting or rather uncontrolled background noise that I'm not responsible for making. And uh, I like a lot of different kinds of music and I sort of ramp up through the course of the day, I will uh, start with classical. And even within these categories, there are certain things that go with writing and certain things that don't. So mm -hmm. uh, earlier eras from the Renaissance and the Baroque era and uh, the 
classical era up to the romantic era all uh, sort of uh, work. Uh, chamber music often uh, works better than symphonic, although symphonic is often fine, especially the earlier you get. Certain things, however, I like but cannot uh, listen to while writing, like, for example, all 20th century classical music, um, and certain things... <laughs> You're halfway there. Yeah, I cannot abide either way anything with organ music. Uh, that's not the Hammond B3 organ, but the right. giant classical organ, which I cannot stand. The Hammond B3 is the bacon of music. Yes, or uh, art song, uh, leader, can't stand that. Right. And the lyrics, if it is sung, cannot be in English, uh, which is curious because once we get to other music, I can write with pop music on that has English language lyrics, but for some reason, uh, perhaps because of the singing style, it, it pops up too much, the same way that mm -hmm. anything with a spoken word component, I can't. Uh, right to. And so anyway, the, through my day, I might add a little jazz. The jazz can't be uh, too spiky or complicated. So uh, we're talking like uh, uh, vintage uh, 20s, 30s jazz or soul jazz era. rather than yeah. uh, bebop or something really dissonant. Uh, there's, so there's no Anthony Braxton or Cecil Taylor, but there's a lot of Cal Jader and uh, Jimmy Smith. Um, and then I might move on to uh, various forms of uh, pop music like uh, actual proper country or alt country or indie rock or classic rock. Um, and there are very few uh, genres that I uh, don't really dig. Blank spots for me are uh, metal, which is uh, uh, just too metallic. And it was never much of a hip hop guy. If I want my music of uh, adolescent rebellion, that would be uh, punk and things influenced by punk. But even then later on in the day, I have to be really firing on all cylinders to have uh, sort of loud, aggressive movement uh, music going on. And if I start to falter, I will then go back and uh, dial up some more uh, Baroque music. I subscribe to a service that tracks everything I play because that gives me the illusion of collecting something without collecting anything. And so I can mathematically tell you that my favorite artists, uh, the top eight in order, are Ennio Morricone, Tom Waits, Bell and Sebastian, The New Pornographers, Feist, Johann Sebastian Bach, Tindersticks, and Miles Davis. There you go. While I'm editing, uh, I can't have lyrics of any kind. I can have lyrics while I'm uh, writing, but not while I'm editing. Uh, and so that indicates the preponderance of uh, soundtrack or jazz or classical on that list. And even the Tinder sticks are on there because I listen to a lot of the soundtracks that they do for Claire Denis movies. Marshall Miller asks, what is the secret origin of the Appalachian Trail? Robin, what's the secret origin of the Appalachian Trail? I think this is a Ken question. I, I have think no this is a Ken this. question. It's, it's a place for, well, it's now associated with uh, with Eros, of course. Because, yes, uh, thanks to um, uh, good old uh, Governor S Sanford. Yeah, so it must be associated with uh, with Apollo or, or, or Cupid or something. And that, uh, you know, when you go hiking the Appalachian Trail, it's really the the romantic Appalachian Trail of your mind and not, not the one on the ground. Not the, not the foolish mapped Appalachian Trail. Uh, the Appalachian Trail is uh, the spine of one of the four great serpents that lie beneath North America. I think pretty much everyone knows that. It was mapped secretly by George Washington in order to uh, provide America with its first great ley line. And then he, uh, he sent uh, George Rogers Clark, not his nephew of Lewis and Clark fame, out to take the uh, next uh, serpent, which is uh, the one in the Midwest and Middle Southwest. Uh, that is its secret uh, truth and its secret origin, and I think that wow, that was fast. But that's what it is, you know. When you when something is is true and obvious, that's what it is. And then it was uh, revealed, of course, in the twenties when things get revealed. 
So, uh, Joey Tyne has a CanCon Elliptony question, which is Sasquatch and the Ogopogo, legit monsters or foolish Canadian pretenders? So, uh, as a Canadian, I will field this. Mm-hmm. Sasquatch, of course, is just a good old American Bigfoot Absolutely. acquiring uh, yet another alias uh, when he crosses the border, just the way that knit caps turn into toques. Uh, when you cross the the, the border. So he's totally uh, cool. Ogopogo, on the other hand, is not a thing. He's a scam. He's a cool statue uh, for uh, tourists. Champ is the only great uh, lake monster, and uh, I believe is Lake Champlain, does that touch Canada, or is that all ours now? Um, I, I forget, but I think we sort of claim Champ, I think. Yeah, there, there must be. He must uh, be partially Canadian. Just, even, if, you know. even if he's not, even if Lake Champlain is all within the borders of the Holy Republic, Champ probably swam down from the St. Lawrence. Yeah, so that's the same way that we, like, claim David Byrne, right? He he went to school here, so he's an honorary Canadian. So he's a Canadian, absolutely. Doyle Tavener asks, I want a six-hour Gen Con round co-GM'd by you two, preferably during the evening when you would normally be drinking, to maximize your annoyance. How much does the Kickstarter have to hit? I like a mercenary question, and I, of course, have liked Doyle Tavener ever since... He was uh, on the Nephilim mailing lists back in the ancient times. So, uh, Robin, what are we thinking? Is that a $50,000 Kickstarter split between the two of us? Does that cover it? Probably not, actually, because the main expense is going to be immigration lawyers. Uh, right. Because if I am doing uh, actual work on U.S. soil, I need to have my green card in order. Do you really? Yeah, if I'm doing something that Even I'm getting... Even if you just like came across and... Like, if you were a, 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 a hip rock band and you came across to, to gig... There's Arcade paperwork Fire involved to, in that. Well, I'm sure right? there's paperwork, they, they but is can it a full green card, or is it just like a little form? And they're like, yeah, we're going to come play in Vermont. And they're like, okay, there you go, Arcade Fire. You kids, you kids knock yourself out and have a good time. I don't know if it's... I think it's technically a green card, but anyway... that's why we have to pay the lawyer. If it's right? not a green card, it's a 1281-6, right? Right, yeah. Um, so Ooh, I like that. rather than get hung up on, on technicalities, if I'm going to be getting paid to actually do things in the United States... We need to go through that process by which mm-hmm. rock bands get permission to tour by proving that they're not just any random rock musician, but rather they are a specific rock musician who is irreplaceable due to their fame. Right. And we get this all the time in other forms of the entertainment industry, but because paid GMing is not a thing, we would have to explain what role playing is to American immigration officials and then establish that I was not coming to Gen Con to pick up a big pot of money and put some other professional game master out of work. So I would have to establish my fame and we would have to establish that this new category created entirely for this experience qualified for this set of immigration law. So I think that would be probably a very expensive multi-year process that we'd have to you know, so, so I guess uh, Doyle should go price lawyers and then come back and add 50 grand to that. Yes, and I would still want that to be like on the... Let, let's meet up early on the Tuesday night and do that because uh, those those nights of being with uh, all of my best friends who I only get to see four to eight days a year are uh, are very precious to me. So uh, it would have to be a, a pretty good amount of money. So to, there uh, you go, Doyle. 50 grand and uh, f- and uh, legal immigration papers buys you yes. Tuesday. So new legal ramp it up precedent. from there. Yeah. Well, if it's Tuesday, I might go down a bit on that. Well, now, see, now you can't go down. That's not the way we negotiate. Right. That's why you've got an American in the band. There we like go. Arcade Fire, Ken actually. is forcing me to go for... 50 grand for the two of us, plus all legal expenses. Plus legal expenses. 
Taka Hemola, undoubtedly mispronounced. Apologies to uh, Taka and to Finland. Your players are coming in 30 minutes and you have nothing prepared. How do you prep a successful session from scratch in that time? And you are not allowed to say play fiasco. I say Taka has managed his exclusions poorly, but I'll let you uh, field that question <laughs> first, Ken. If, if I have 30 minutes, then I'm not unprepared. That's just how my brain works. If I've got 30 minutes, that, that, that sometimes that's all the preparation I have for a regular session. But no, the, the, the way to, to prep is to figure out what the story beats are that you want to hit, either in terms of objectives reached or revelations had or great character moments interacted with. And then you figure out one or two fights to drop or other sort of long, exciting conflicts to drop around those beats, either as reward or punishment for getting there or as obstacle on the way. And then you just sort of plausibly figure out where that might happen in the part of the game universe that your players are. And then you let them to then they show up, they come up with their own thing and the whole plan goes th gets thrown out the window, regardless of what you decided. So I don't I don't see the question. Robin, I, I will spend. 29 minutes uh, setting up and puttering around on the internet and possibly finishing my dinner, and then I will play Drama System, there you go. which Boom. requires no preparation whatsoever, assuming you already have a series pitch on hand, and uh, even if not, you can undoubtedly work your way through one. Yeah, and, uh, and why wouldn't you have a series pitch on hand, for God's sake? There are any nominated... Yeah, indeed, yes. I, I have a large number of them on hand. Yes. Michael Bowman asks, can Ken recommend one or two Dennis Wheatley novels to start with, which is kind of rough on you, Robin, but I'm, if you have Dennis Wheatley Rex to fill in, then go right ahead. I would recommend uh, To the Devil a Daughter, which is sort of, uh, it, it's, it's an isolated bit. It's not part of the full-on Black Magic universe. You don't have to get really uh, tied up in, in the whole ongoing story. It, it's pretty self-contained, and I like it a great deal. And then uh, I would say The Devil Rides Out as one of the best of the Duke de Richelieu novels, and that will sort of get you in into the deep end, not the super deep end, but the deepish end of Wheatley's unique blends of chauvinism, uh, gentlemanliness, and real, real um, uh, visceral cruelty. And if you if that's a mix that works for you, then you'll be able to find your own Dennis Wheatley novels thanks to the miracle of the internet. Robin, have you got one that I missed that you would toss onto the pile? Those were my two. Those were your two. And they both have movies made of them, although um, uh, I think The Devil Rides Out is a better film, sadly. To the Devil a Daughter, probably a more an easier to make film, but the filmmaker did not quite come up to the level. Uh, yes, that relies heavily on Nastasia Kinski uh, nudity, which was something uh, they did back then. Right, back in the day when they had access to that, that was a, that was a thing. Brett Evel, and uh, this time I'm pronouncing his uh, name right. It is his actual name and not a, a handle, as I uh, foolishly thought last time. Right. His name is Brett. Yes, his name is definitely Brett. Uh, if each of you could greenlight a one movie or HBO series, what would you choose to have made? Ken? Declare as an HBO series uh, along the same lines as Tinker Taylor and Smiley's People on the BBC just draw it out over a great long time. I'd, I'd, you know, maybe it wouldn't be an ongoing series because uh, generally HBO loses its way very rapidly when it does that kind of thing. But in sort of the true detective mold where you've got 13 episodes and it's going to run until it's done, I think Declare would be ideal for that. And I would love to see Powers get um, uh, a lot of uh, fat bank and a little of that George R. R. Martin, Martin smell of success from a big uh, HBO publicity machine. And I think that I just want to see it on the screen 
because I've seen it in the screen in my head plenty of times. Now, I'm assuming this question that we get to make these things that we're greenlighting. Oh, I'm going to be showrunner on that thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I'm uh, greenlighting uh, my movie adaptation of William Hope Hodgson's Boats of the Glen Carrig, which is shot in a dreamy uh, manner referencing Terrence Malick. Yeah. Oh, man. Are you going to be producing and, and have Malick direct it, or are you going I'm to... I'm directing, man. You're directing it. All right. Yeah, Excellent. just take him as a reference point. You're and just uh, using Malick as your as your, yeah. as your so be dreamy, very stylized, uh, obviously sort of set-bound, and... Uh, who's your who's your, uh, your 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 narrator figure, the, the main character? Have you cast that or not? Uh, I've not cast that yet. Yeah. Send in your resumes, people. I think maybe Jim Caviezel. Who knows? Beige Jenkin, obviously a, um, a paler version of Brown Jenkin, asks, what are your drama system dramatic poles? And I assume they mean what are ours individually as opposed to what are ours as a podcast. Yes, I, th I think, uh, well, uh, as a podcast, it's erudition uh, versus pausing. Versus pausing versus insanity. Yes. Uh, Robin, uh, what are your drama system dramatic poles? My dramatic poles are pleaser versus challenger. I'm a... Uh, Nice, well-spoken Canadian, and in social situations, my impulse is always to uh, make people feel uh, comfortable and happy and to resolve disputes, and I want to make people feel good, and in my social media presence, I want to uh, project a, a positive, if uh, sometimes sarcastic, sometimes darkly sarcastic persona. On the other hand, in a lot of my work, I am... Uh, trying to do for the audience what my favorite artists do for me, which is shake them up, make them think in new ways, poke them, disturb them, freak them out. Uh, and so those are opposite uh, qualities, and those are the things that I often uh, try to find myself uh, balancing in my life and in my work. Now, I would say that mine are uh, fairly common dramatic polls, I think, for a lot of people, are selfish and social. If I'm left to myself, if I got to choose what I wanted to do all day, it would be hanging out with my wife and my cat and maybe about five other people, and everyone else could go uh, to hell on a lifeboat as far as I'm concerned. But that is both wrong and it is self-limiting, even though it's way more fun. So the other poll, which is going out there, being a social butterfly, meeting people, being part of new social settings, you know, hanging out at, at conventions or, or, you know, dramaturging a play or anything that, you know, gets me out of my little box turns out to pay great huge dividends and some of those people then get invited onto the you know onto the selfish end of the end of the stick as well onto the list of five <laughs> onto causing, the list of five. causing the ejection of uh, your weakest performing uh, current friend that keeps everyone else on their toes and then i think that also plays out in my games because the stuff that i design so much of it is written pretty much solely for the demons that live in my head that it's just about my obsessions and then I have to think, okay, how do I make anyone else interested in the convolutions of spy narrative? How do I make anyone else interested in post-war uh, British heroism? How do I make anyone else interested in you know, the Nazi occult, right? In, in some question that is consuming me and that I'm totally interested in, but then I have to put it out there in a way that other people can play and, and find enjoyment in. And so I guess that's a professional challenge as well as a personal challenge. Travis Miller asks, Assuming the money is right, what characteristics does a project pitched to you by a client have to have for you to accept? Well, it has to be the client has to be Simon right now, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> right, you are not currently freelancing. I am not a freelancer. I am, I am available for short, tiny spurts of freelance work on my weekends. 
and uh, Simon has been nice enough to uh, open up a little uh, room for me to uh, write some of Delta Green, just on the grounds that that makes good sense for everyone. But, yeah, right now, something has to be better than spending a weekend, as previously mentioned, on my couch with my cat or hanging out with my five friends. <laughs> and so the project really, really has to light my fires uh, creatively. Uh, and, and the nature of, of that, of course, then it means it has to be an idea that is better than one that I have already thought of. And so that is a fairly high bar. Robin? When I evaluate a project, there's basically a tripod of things. If I'm establishing a new relationship with a new client or uh, even evaluating an ongoing relationship with a client as to whether I want to continue it or, or not, there are three prongs to that stool. And one of them is the aforementioned money. Mm -hmm. So I don't work for Pelgrain full-time. For example, I'm spending a lot of time uh, this year on uh, Feng Shui 2. But basically, as a default, uh, I'm in the lucky position where I know that if I do have a block of time, I can just go to Simon and say, here's three ideas for books. Which one do you want me to do first? Um, and theoretically, he might go, oh, I don't want any of those. I want something else instead. Uh, in practice, he says, I would like all three to start with this one. Mm -hmm. And because, uh, you know, he pays me a good solid rate, and I know that... And Pays you professionally and on time, which right. is not to be not to be disdained at all in our line of work. Right. Or even, you know, we don't even set deadlines anymore. I just, you know, devote chunks of time and send him stuff when it's done. Yeah. And then he pays you, which yes. is the part that I mean. <laughs> right. So that's the, right. that's the ideal situation. So the other prongs are uh, creative freedom. Well, Simon offers me that in spades as well. Mm -hmm. but he has yes. learned the lesson that uh, other people have learned, which is uh, when you doubt Robin, don't. And uh, he will. He has good notes and will suggest to change this or that. But the things that I have released through Pelgrane are uh, my vision realized. Uh, and so that's the. Uh, so someone also has to give me the assurance uh, or the feeling that what I produce for them will be wind up being the the way I want it as one of those uh, prongs. Now, of course, all of these things have to be weighed against each other. So there's a certain word rate at which I don't care. If you're writing, for example, uh, I don't know what the current freelance situation is with uh, Watsi Dungeons and Dragons because it changes over time. But mm -hmm. at certain periods, you would write chunks of stuff and send it to them and they would have a great word rate. And then you would see the book and maybe, you know, half of it had been rewritten or more. There's periods where they just sort of use that as, as grist, but the word rate is enough that I don't mind that they do whatever with it, right? You're just giving them ingredients for their stew and they figure it's worth a good chunk of change, so I will uh, do that. Uh, but, you know, on the whole, I would rather have something come out that expresses what I wanted to express. Um, and the other one is just, does this open up other new opportunities? So if it's a chance to work in a, a new field, that might be attractive and might be worth uh, coming down on the word rate or, uh, or not. Um, something else that I've had to start really considering, though, is that in the Kickstarter era, there are a lot of people who want to find a huge cast of uh, contributors to contribute small little uh, chunks of something for what is usually a good rate, but is a kind of small project. And so if something is not actually even a day's worth of work, it doesn't, you know, it's a generous fee for the amount of work you're doing, but it's not enough work to actually cover a full day, that's problematic because it's very difficult to switch gears in midday, uh, for me anyway, between projects. I don't know how you are. Uh, with that, but I find switching gears to be very challenging. So if I spend the first half of the day uh, working on something that's only a thousand words, it's not easy for me to then go and shift to another 
project. So it kind of blows my whole day. And there's often always also with these apparently small projects come with a heavy weight of additional research work. Either that's uh, sometimes it's historical research, but more often it's just learning somebody's system and world. Well, if you have to read a rule book that takes you three days in order to write a thousand words, the apparently generous word rate for those thousand words isn't actually so yeah, generous. Right. So one thing I've had to start doing is unfortunately turning down, learning to be better at saying no to a lot of these cool little things that are taking up brain space out of proportion to the amount of work involved because I really should be devoting uh, time to uh, to Pelgrane and, and Simon. But uh, that's a, a long way of saying that the, the three balancing factors are money, creative fulfillment, and new opportunities. The next question is from James DeBrucker, who asks, how do you study elliptony while avoiding anti-Semitism? And the answer is, how do you study cancer while avoiding tumors? It's pretty much knotted right up into the topic. Uh, sadly, um, anti-Semitism, at least in the West, and apparently in Japan for reasons that escape me, is a fundamental failure mode to thinking. And it is a powerful meme uh, that has been around in one form or another for the last 1,500 or 2,000 years, depending on where you date the beginning of it, and it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon, and I'll bet if we had more stuff that the Persians and the Babylonians were writing, we'd find that it goes all the way back to the first day someone met the Jews, which tells you that they were chosen for something, at the very least. But the way that you avoid it is by knowing the signs, knowing what to look for, make sure that you buy your elliptony used if you don't know everything about the author already. That is a great uh, starter way to make sure that your money is not going to an anti-Semite Personally, uh, regardless, I mean, the bookstore owner may be, but you can't really control for that very easily. And, you know, just make sure that you're always aware of what uh, anti-Semitic tropes are, so that even if you are reading something about international bankers, and you may think, well, everyone hates bankers, but once you realize that that is a very common swap out for the Jews, then you want to make sure that this anti-international banker thing that you're reading, even, you know, if it's an enjoyably written conspiracy theory, that when you import it into your game or into your, your product, that you make sure to de-anti-Semitize it even further. And so you make sure that they're uh, wasp bankers uh, from the East Coast establishment as opposed to Rothschilds from uh, the city of London. Or lizards. Or lizards. Lizards, also another strong possibility. People are used to saying to David Icke, it's like, these lizards you talk about, they're a metaphor for Jews. And he said, no, no, they're nope, lizards. They're, they're lizard people. Yeah, David Icke is, again, I think he's, he's an example of how you can become an anti-Semite without necessarily even thinking about being an anti-Semite, because he, of course, is the failure mode of thought just all day and all night. And so, therefore, <laughs> and so therefore, his, you know, sort of vacuum approach to crazy has drawn in all these anti-Semitic memes up to and including pretty much the entirety of the protocols of the elders of Zion. But he's just a simple minded idiot in a purple tracksuit. He doesn't know any of this. And so he's like, no, this is the lizard plan. And I don't know why everyone's so head up about it. But just because he's an idiot doesn't mean he's not promulgating anti-Semitic uh, propaganda. So don't be an idiot. Or, you know, you could think of him as the catfish on the bottom of the aquarium and repurposing all this anti-Semitism as, as lizard people. He is, he is not digesting it so well as a catfish does, sadly. But, you know, yeah, still, he, he's available used, so, and it's it's top-shelf crazy, so if you, uh, you want to read it, there's nothing wrong with that. Just don't, you know, make sure you digest it uh, more thoroughly and shoot it out more disintegrated. 
Robin, is, do you have anti-Semitism that runs into you in the history of art or any of the other sort of abstruse fields that you run into, or are you blissfully tap-dancing past that blot on uh, intellectualism? Um, well, I think you have to be careful of it in, when you're creating conspiracy narratives, as you suggest, that you uh, are careful in general, not just about whether you're, you know, it's not like my hands are going to slip on the typewriter and all of a sudden I'm going to be, yeah, uh, right. you, you know, suddenly writing about blood libel or anything. But um, I think in, to zoom out a bit that you have to be careful about who you are casting as your villains and you want to uh, create some sort of variety and think about what the uh, political valence of, of who you're uh, uh, bad guys are. So that's, uh, I think, a more of a general question and perhaps even a full segment for later. For, possibly for a, for a hut somewhere. Jeremy Forbing asks, people often say George Washington could have been king instead of president if he had wanted to. This is true. Is there any recognizable alternate timeline where that would have actually happened? This, of course, hinges on the word recognizable, and so the answer is no. It's like the timeline in which Adolf Hitler is nice to Jews. Speaking of anti-Semitism, one assumes that it is possible that Adolf Hitler could have been raised well and and uh, been uh, brought up right not to be a, a hateful, scummy little uh, bastard. But on the other hand, then he's hardly Adolf Hitler, is he? So a George Washington who wants to be king is un-George Washington-y. Robin, do you have any thoughts on George Washington's uh, monarchical tendencies? Um, I, I think, yeah, that, I think that violates the basic premise of alternate timelines, right? Is that you have to have uh, events be different, but if you're making the people be different, you know, you could go back and, uh, you, you know, create the split that makes uh, George Washington super ambitious or you have him get him have a head injury at a crucial moment. I guess, I guess that would be it, right? He would get shot on the battlefield and it would be just enough to, uh, to turn him and make him not quite who he is, but people yeah. don't realize it. And, uh, when, uh, 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 Captain Ferguson, the guy who invented the Ferguson rifle, apparently had George Washington in his sights at uh, Brandywine field or somewhere like that. So maybe, maybe that happens. So the, there you go. A graze to the skull could have done it. Yeah, I suppose. That doesn't uh, require us to violate uh, character essentialism, but we know that brain injuries can affect behavior. So uh, there, there's your branch point. Yeah, no, he's bulletproof. He, it bounces <laughs> off. He goes over and he beats Captain Ferguson to death with his own gun. That's what happens. <laughs> well, I, I, we may have entered in a realm of special pleading, so uh, let's move on to the next one. Special pleading. You look it up. Do the reading. That's all I say. Read a book. Ben Mund asks, which Tom Waits song would make the best Trail of Cthulhu scenario? My choice would be from Rain Dogs, because uh, of course you will note that I read off Tom Waits as one of my top artists uh, earlier, uh, would be Cemetery Polka from Rain Dogs, which is a song in which he's uh, listing off all of these uh, neighborhood characters and what sounds like it's probably in some time in the Depression uh, and all of their ailments and weaknesses. <laughs> so, and so, so many of Tom Waits' songs sound like they're in the Depression, regardless of where exactly. they're set. Hence the question, right? Uh, this isn't like which Janet Jackson song would make the best no. trail of Cthulhu uh, scenario. Which, of course, is nasty. We all know that. So, you know, there's Uncle Vernon, who's independent as a hog on ice, plays accordion for Mr. Weiss. So it just lists off all of these people and gives you biographies. So that's your... A cast of uh, supporting characters, and uh, they can all be together in the neighborhood as uh, something is horrible is happening to them and uh, leading them toward the cemetery. I would say that the one that I would pick would be his cover of What Keeps Mankind Alive by Kurt Weil and Bertolt Brecht, which is, if you all remember, What Keeps Mankind Alive is Bestial Acts, and if that is not the fundamental message of Trail of Cthulhu, then I have nodded off during my own game. 
If you insist on a song that Tom Waits himself wrote and performed, then 16 shells from a 30-06 sounds like an ideal Trail of Cthulhu scenario. Maybe it's the back end of, of Robin's uh, scenario. You've met all these lovely people, and now you have to um, uh, get out your 30-06 and take care of the ghouls that are plaguing them. Michael Kachi asks, Though humor generally kills horror, what about a black comedy? Have either Ken or Robin intentionally run a black comedy-type scenario? And I suppose besides every single Dying Earth game you've ever run, is there one that you've uh, looked at as black comedy fundamentally? Yeah, it's not a, a horror comedy, but the double campaign that I ran, was, which was sort of half-modified Best Friends and half-Hero Quest, in which the players had two sets of characters. Uh, one set of characters were the American war cabinet back on the home planet, and the other were the uh, grunts on this alien uh, world inhabited by lizard people uh, that was invaded in order to uh, secure their weapons of mass destruction and, of course, access to their important uh, resource needed for spaceflight. And so the characters on the ground would do things and but then falsely report what they were doing because they knew what their superiors wanted to hear up the chain of command and then the next week everybody would take that false information act on it and give new orders that the next week would then reverberate down and screw the people on the ground and so that was definitely a black comedy all the way through but not horror per se it was a a black uh, space comedy with sort of a i guess a uh a Judge Dredd kind of uh, level of uh, dark comedy, which I guess sort of depends on which Judge Dredd you're talking about, because some of them are straighter than others. But th that would be my big example. Uh, and, of course, Skullduggery. It's an entire game of, of uh, black comedy, uh, and you could easily create a playset for that that was set in a, in a haunted house uh, if you actually wanted a full-out horror comedy. I have run very little uh, horror, again, with a deliberately comic edge, although... Their black comedy is an emergent property, I find, of horror, especially serial horror, where the same characters come back and do the same thing over again. And so black comedy notes will show up even in the best-run Call of Cthulhu games, because your characters recognize that they're, you know, basically, you know, still trapped in this hellish wheel of uh, murdering people and burying them in the desert, and... When you have a running gag about all the, uh, the the green, how you're making the desert green one cultist at a time, that's black comedy, uh, regardless of whether the individual scenarios aren't. Yeah, I would actually disagree with the premise that humor yeah. kills horror, that there are all kinds of genuinely scary horror movies and books where there are moments of humor because that gives you the the sort of up moment that's a release of tension, and then that allows them to then crank up the, the tension again because you can't just have... Uh, horror, 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 because people become desensitized. But if you have moments of humor or lightness, uh, that allows you to, that, that contrast that, uh, that makes horror work. So it's not an essential element, but some sort of element of light within any sort of long horror piece is kind of necessary. And I would say inevitable. And I think this is another, another, another question to fill out a whole segment of the horror hut, actually, the gravedigger and humor in horror generally. Scott Carter asks, if invited to a con, what considerations do you make before replying? First is time, right? If the convention is happening opposite something that I want to or have to do, then I am much less likely to go to it because either I've already promised someone else to be somewhere or it's a time that I consider to be too important to leave. Metatopia managed to be such a great convention that I actually 
did not spend Halloween with my wife. Halloween is our Valentine's Day in our marriage. That is high praise indeed. By contrast, Valentine's Day, I'm always spending away from her because it's February in Chicago. And literally, if your convention is somewhere warmer than Chicago in the winter, absolutely, <laughs> I'm there in spades. But yeah, um, besides, uh, you know, assuming the timing works out right, I currently, you know, want a plane ticket and a hotel room. And I don't think that that's too exotic. I'm not yet at the Neil Gaiman level where I'm charging $10,000 or $100,000 or whatever it is to not show up uh, in crowds because there's too many crowds. But it's I, I'm, I'm not famous enough to, to get an honorarium, but I think that if you want me there, you better get me there and make sure that I can go to sleep at night. Robin? Yeah, I, I'm now at the point where I'm turning down convention invitations because I get more invitations than I have time that I can make available to uh, travel. And it's not just a matter of does this conflict with something else, it's does it conflict with my doing work? Because you, when you travel, uh, especially when you're traveling somewhere where you're supposed to be on and have an engaged brain, right? A, a, a convention is not a restful no, vacation. No, it's not a vacation. It's a, it's a work it's trip. It's harder yeah. work. And so the day or maybe even two days ahead of the uh, traveling is a wipeout because you're prepping and packing and trying to remember all the stuff you're supposed to take with you. So that's you can't work on do useful work on those days. Uh, and then there's the actual travel day. And then there's the day of the show. And then you come back and then uh, you're uh, wiped out uh, the next day and maybe ought to take a couple of days off to recover from all the extra energy you expended. And then the first day back actually working gets eaten up by email and catching up on stuff. So I can only budget X amount of time a year to devote to these things. So I have to be more strategic about it. And so not only do I require uh, what you do, which is all travel expenses and accommodations paid, but you are competing with cool locations. So uh, given a choice between Buffalo, New York and Provence, yes. I'm sorry, Buffalo, New York. I am, however, going to be in Buffalo, New York in, I guess, September. So oh, there, there you, you go. go. But Buffalo is, is an underrated city. I think it's it's gorgeous. Well, but again, by saying yes. it's not Provence. Yes. But Provence is Provence. The critique right. of Buffalo is not, yeah. is not incisive. In, in fairness, Provence is, is terrific. And... Uh, Good job bringing that back up, by the way. Right. So it's location, location, location. So, for example, I'm going to a convention that I believe you'll be at as well in January in Albuquerque. Or not Albuquerque. Austin. What am I in saying? Austin, Texas. Austin. And the reason that it's silly for me to have gotten that name wrong is I actually have uh, relatives there. So we're going to, uh, Valerie's going to come down. We're going to stay a few extra days and uh, meet our fabulous nieces and hang out. And Austin is, is a great location as well. It's a great city. And it's Texas in January. Right. So so the, at this point, the answer is starting to be, be in a fabulous location. Right. And, you know, maybe the point will come where, you know, our appearances are so desirable that they do warrant performance fees, but then that gets us back into that whole uh, aforementioned immigration issue. Back to your green card foolishness. Well, I think we have uh, time for uh, one more lightning round question, and then after that, we will save the others in our hopper of lightning round questions for future episodes. Wow. So let me actually, I'm going to skip down there's so many. and find uh, a super, super awesome one. Oh, here's a, here's a topical one. Uh, Colin Khan asks, what kind of consulting work did you guys do for fifth edition D and D? Well, uh, it was, they, they sent a copy of the rule set as it currently existed and asked for my opinion. And I wrote, Basically, things that I liked, things that I thought were misguided or wrong, and then suggested areas that they needed to have the rules set, cover, and explore. And that was by their specific request, was very much a, 
if you're running a game in this set as you, as beloved game master and crazy person can hype, what does this game set need to provide to give you cover for that? And it was it's not the sort of thing where it's like, well, you don't have any mass combat in here because you have to have mass combat because of the Battle of Five, uh, five Armies in, in Lord of the Rings. No, it's honest to God. How, if Ken Height is running Dungeons & Dragons, what does this game need to have to back Ken Height up? And I don't know to what extent they listened to me necessarily on any of these things. And then they sent me a lovely check, and I, I'm still under an NDA. I don't know if, if Robin had to sign one or got to sign a better one because he's better than me. Yes, I, I just sign an NDA as well, which is why I think that you're being vague and I'm being vague about the actual contents. Mm-hmm. But mostly it was about not revealing secrets, and the cat is largely out of the bag at this yeah. point. So although I, I will be uh, circumspect about specific recommendations, I can basically echo what you said, which is that I got a copy of the game as it existed just prior to the first playtest round. And so I responded to that in a document as you did, and I played it for a while and used the uh, insights garnered from playing it as well as from uh, reading it, and I had a a number of points. And uh, the main thing I felt about it at that point isn't a secret, which is that it did a a good job of evoking the feeling of D&D, whatever that is, uh, which would, I think it's probably the unofficial design goals for 5th edition is evoke the D&D feel, whatever that is. Uh, which was a process of finding out what you know what is the D and D feel because there are so many D and Ds these days and this was supposed to be the the one addition to unite them all. I'm sure uh, Mike would be the first to say that that's a uh, steep hill to climb, and he'd say it even more now than he would have when he started. I think. <laughs> yes, no, no. You always know how steep the hill is when you're at the top yeah. of it. Then this question of rappelling down afterwards which is a whole nother thing. But I guess, you know, if people are concerned that uh, certain consultants had a lot of influence over the process, uh, that wasn't my experience. I don't think that uh, I exercised any particular mind control. Mike uh, did indicate that he found my comments useful, so I uh, hope that I did, and maybe we will uh, hang out with him again at uh, Gen Con and find out exactly uh, what was useful and what wasn't. And then we won't tell you, because we'll probably still be no. the other NDA. You can ask your own lightning round question, and then we'll be vague about right. it again at the end of a podcast, uh, perhaps in our 200th edition. That's right. Perhaps um, uh, our 200th edition, when uh, we have all gotten our uh, creative consultant uh, credits for Vampire 24th or whatever the hell. Uh, well, I think we've done our job here, Ken. Indeed we have. Let's look forward to another 100 and more episodes. I do so. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Celebrate our milestone by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Join such patrons as Paul Sexton. Pedro Sanchez. Michael and Linda Schiffer. And the notably munificent James Chang. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or Tulpadust. By advertising with us, grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>